Hello and welcome to Crime Lines 2023. In order to facilitate a little bit of a break for myself this month in January, I do have two episodes that used to be Patreon episodes. They've been there for more than a year, but I thought they're worth bringing out and putting out to allow for the break, but also to allow for content for everyone. Both of these episodes will deal with the serial killer Israel Keys. The first one that you're going to hear today is just going to be a coverage of his known crimes. And I need to obviously shout out the podcast True Crime Bullshit, who will be linked in the show notes for the information and the help on this. The second episode is going to be where I went with Josh, the host of True Crime Bullshit, to Texas to investigate a possible case that may be linked to Keys, and we went to two key sites down there, one being a house arson and the other being a bank. These aren't really a part one and part two because they're two separate episodes, but so if you just want to listen to this one or you just want to listen to that one, that's totally fine. So without further ado, here is the episode. In 2012, Israel Keyes was arrested for using a missing woman's debit card. He was named the sole person of interest in her murder. But when he started talking, the FBI realized they had a serial killer on their hands. I'm Charlie and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome to the November bonus episode. I want to thank Donna for suggesting I cover Israel Keys and his known crimes, not doing all the rambling audio and the cuts of this and that, but just a clear walkthrough of his known crimes. I would not have done this if it wasn't suggested, so I really do appreciate suggestions. 100% I take them on board. I have worked very hard on this episode and also the second one that will be coming out for the $5 Patreon level. But don't worry, this isn't a series where you need to have both parts. This is entirely a standalone episode, so don't feel pressured to have to increase your donation amount or like you're only getting half of the story here. I'm definitely not one of those people who will say, to hear the rest of the story, pay me more money. Absolutely would never do that. The way I am doing this is that this episode is going to cover Israel Keyes' confirmed victims. We are not going to dive into the speculation side of potential victims, and this is just a regular crime lines approach to things. I'm taking us through it chronologically. The second episode is going to be different. In October, I went with Josh Hallmark from the True Crime Bullshit podcast to Texas to check on a couple of Key's crime scenes, not known murders, but rather an arson and a bank robbery. This is an area Keyes was known to be at between his last confirmed murder and his arrest. That episode, the sort of part two of this, we'll talk about that trip and we will include Josh's theories of what Keyes was doing in Texas during that time. That one is very different in the sense that it is narration, clips from our trip, because I did record it, a few keys interrogation clips, and an interview I did with Josh. It's all mixed together, 
and it will absolutely include speculation. But for this one, we are just focusing on four murders, three that Keyes directly confessed to, and a fourth that the FBI has confirmed to be one of his crimes. So just some background on these confessions before we get into them. Israel Keyes was arrested on March 13, 2012 in Lufkin, Texas, for the murder of Samantha Koenig, which we will talk about last, since it is the last confirmed murder. After Keyes' arrest, he wanted a swift execution date and absolutely no publicity because he wanted to keep his name, his family, and especially his daughter out of this. He admitted that he liked following publicity around the cases, and he would even read up on them. He said he got a kick out of internet sleuths and commenters, and even the actual investigators getting things wrong, but he didn't want to be part of the reporting himself. Keyes said at the start of these interviews that he knew what evidence the investigators had access to at his home and on his computer, so he was only going to confess to things he thought they would figure out on their own anyway. He flat out admitted he was not going to give them everything. The bulk of what could be considered Keyes' confessions were entirely vague confessions. He might include the basic time frame and a little bit of what happened, but that was it. Not enough to know for sure who the victim was. There is one vague confession, though, that the FBI is very sure matches a missing woman from New Jersey. And so while this is far from his first victim. It's the first one we're discussing because the FBI considers it his earliest confirmed victim, and that is Deborah Feldman. The confession Keyes gave was basically that he kidnapped a woman on the East Coast right before taking her to a different state to rape and murder her before he then buried her near the Roquette River, which is near Tupper Lake, New York. Keyes then said he robbed a bank in Tupper Lake. Bank robberies aren't exactly the type of crimes that fly under the radar. They're always reported, so it was pretty easy to find this one. It occurred on April 10th, 2009 at the Community Bank in Tupper Lake. You can even find the original articles about it online. You don't need a deep dive into the newspaper articles. Just Google it. They even have a picture of the bank robber from the security camera. We now know that person is Israel Keys in disguise. So they have a date for the bank robbery, and from there it was a matter of figuring out who went missing from the East Coast around that time. We know not everyone who goes missing is reported missing. We do have to account for that. But when you do look at the people reported missing, two names come up. One was a small child that is almost surely a custodial kidnapping situation. The other was 48-year-old Deborah Feldman. Not a lot about Deborah's disappearance made the news prior to Keyes being announced as a suspect in the case in late 2013. Deborah was last seen on April 8, 2009, at her apartment in Hackensack, New Jersey. 
He said he abducted a woman on the 9th, so the timeline definitely fits. Deborah had a many years long, very serious drug problem. According to her ex husband and her son, she used pretty much any drug out there. It's believed she engaged in occasional sex work to pay for her habit, and that is what may have put her in the path of Israel Keys, who was known to hire sex workers. Deborah had on and off contact with her son Matthew. She lost custody of him when he was a young teenager. The last time he saw her, Deborah was demanding that he give her some money. Matthew was maybe 18 or 19 at the time, and he initially refused. He believed his mother was going to use this money for drugs. Matthew said that when he wouldn't give her the money, Deborah threatened to kill herself. She picked up a knife even. But Matthew pushed back, said, you're not going to kill yourself, and she put the knife down. She then explained she needed the money for rent, and Matthew ended up giving it to her, $400. That was money he made working at a fast food place. Matthew still suspected the money was going to drugs, and he told Deborah that there was just no room for her in his life unless she got clean. It wasn't too long after this that the police showed up at his door asking if he had seen his mother. Matthew told them that he hadn't, and an officer let him know that Deborah was missing. After that, Matthew heard very little about the investigation. While Deborah was considered a bit of a drifter, she usually stayed within the area. She was just bouncing from apartment to apartment. So after some time went by with no one having heard from Deborah. Matthew got more worried, but at some point he heard something or remembered something that made him think she may have been an informant, and it was possible she was in some sort of protective custody. It wasn't until 2013 that the FBI announced Israel Keys as a possible suspect in Deborah Feldman's suspected murder. From my understanding, she has gone from possible victim to probable victim to considered confirmed. There are a few reasons they believe Deborah was a victim of Israel Keys. For one, she fit Keyes' vague confession about killing someone the day before the Tupper Lake robbery. Not only did she fit, she was the only known missing person to fit. But I think the main piece of evidence here is a search on Israel Keyes' home computer. I mentioned that Keyes would try to follow the news surrounding cases he was involved in. But he didn't like to search directly for the victim by name because he didn't want that to come back on him. If he used a public computer, like at the library, he wouldn't bother hiding what he was searching for. But his home computer, the one the FBI now had in their possession... Keys would usually just search the location or the time frame or some kind of a detail about the case, but not the victim's name, even though he claimed to know all or most of his victims' names. Keys broke this rule by searching directly for Deborah Feldman, but he spelled her name wrong. Her first name was spelled D E B R A, which is a less common spelling. 
it's very likely searching for her vaguely didn't bring much back since there wasn't a lot reported about her disappearance. When I looked into the newspaper archives I have access to for the year 2009, all I found was a notice that they were selling the contents of Deborah's storage unit due to non-payment. This was four months after her disappearance. It's possible Keyes tried to find her story in the papers the way he usually did, but he couldn't find it. So he was a little careless and decided to just go ahead and search by her name directly. He didn't get anything back because, one, he spelled her name incorrectly, and two, we've already covered it. Deborah didn't get a lot of media attention. She was a drug addict who was a drifter and an occasional sex worker. She was estranged from her closest family. This is just not the type of missing person who gets a lot of media coverage. So to recap, Keyes kidnapped and killed someone the day after Deborah Feldman was last seen, and then he searched for her name on his computer. What are the odds she isn't the April 9th victim? I'd say slim to none. When Keyes was confronted about Deborah Feldman, he went from chatty to not chatty pretty quickly. And that was a tell on these interrogation tapes. He would be chatty, giving all this information and details, but once he got near something he didn't want to talk about, he would pause, he would start and stop sentences, he would change the subject. And that is what he did when Deborah Feldman was brought up. He did deny that he killed her, but then he got into that wishy-washy, you're getting too close to the truth phase of these interrogation tapes. We heard it again and again, and I think If you ever do sit down and listen to the tapes, listen for the times he is not getting chatty. Those are the times he's calculating in his head if confessing will get him what he wants. Because what he wanted was a quick execution date, and he was not going to give any details he didn't think would get him that, or he thought increased his chances of being reported on in the newspaper. The more people he brought into it, the more jurisdictions and cities, the more likely his name would get out there and the less likely he was going to get through the legal process quickly. There are a lot of jurisdictions involved in his crimes. One thing Keyes did to keep off the radar was he would commit his crimes in multiple jurisdictions, but make sure his travel was confusing enough that he couldn't be directly traced to the location. He would fly into one city and rent a car and then take it elsewhere. And I mean a distance from where he flew into. In the case we're talking about next, Keyes flew to Chicago on June 2nd, 2011, and then rented a car and drove to Essex, Vermont. That is a 15-hour drive. While in Vermont, Keyes committed a double murder that he just straight out confessed to. He said he would only confess to crimes that they would probably figure out on their own, and this is definitely one of those. The victims' names were on his computer, and they were killed in an area Keyes was very familiar with. Because he confessed, we know what happened when he kidnapped and murdered Bill and Lorraine Courier, the next two confirmed victims. 
55-year-old Lorraine Courier and her 49-year-old husband, Bill, lived a fairly quiet life in Essex, Vermont. They were described as good-natured homebodies who loved animals. William was an animal care tech at the University of Vermont, and Lorraine worked in financial services at the school's health care center. They both left work as usual around 5 p.m. on June 8, 2011. On June 9th, neither of them made it to work, and the police were called to do a welfare check. Both of them had health problems, so that may have raised the alarm for a welfare check maybe sooner than it would have for others. Bill had a severe form of arthritis called ankylosing spondylitis. This limited some of his movement, and he was also insulin-dependent. Lorraine had heart issues and was on daily medication. When the police arrived at their house, the courier's car was gone, and so were they, but there were clues inside that they hadn't left of their own free will. For one thing, there were signs of a break-in. The doors in the house were locked, but the door from the attached garage into the house had a broken window. Inside the house, the police found Lorraine's glasses and contacts, which she would have taken one or the other with her if she had left the house willingly. The couple also had pet birds and the cages were covered, which is something they did at night before they went to bed, but would have uncovered them in the morning before they left the house. Bill's wallet was in the house still, but Lorraine's purse was missing as was a handgun they owned. Two days later, the courier's car was found in a parking lot about a mile from their house, parked between two apartment buildings. But there was no sign of what had happened to them. That was until three years later when Israel Keyes confessed, and Keyes gave details of what happened. He said his plan was initially to drive from a property he owned in Constable, New York, to his brother's home in Maine. He had to have known he was going to commit a crime on this trip since he did go out of his way to obscure where he was flying. He flew into Chicago. There is also some circumstantial evidence that he may have watched the courier's house on a previous trip to the area. Lorraine told a co-worker that she spotted a strange man who was watching their house while they were there. Keyes did give various reasons why he chose the courier's house, supposedly at random. The first was he was looking for a house with a floor plan similar to theirs. The couriers lived in a small, basic ranch-style home with an attached garage. Keyes knew he could hide out in the garage and then move into the house undetected, and the simple floor plan meant he could find his way to the home's bedrooms quickly and easily. The second reason he said he chose this house was that there were no signs a child lived there. Keyes said, whether you believe him or not, that he went out of his way to make sure children weren't harmed in his crimes after he had his daughter. But Keyes had passed by multiple other houses, just like the courier's house, on his way there. Why didn't he choose one of them? And one of the things he said about the house that told him kids didn't live there had to do with a pool in the backyard, 
which I personally would think increased the likelihood kids lived there. Keyes has also said he didn't attack people he didn't think he could easily overpower. Bill Courier was not a small man by any means, but he did have limited movement due to his severe arthritis. I personally think Keyes knew that because he watched them long enough ahead of time. Prior to arriving at the courier's house that night, Keyes had retrieved his kill kit that he had left in Burlington, Vermont, which is near Essex. The kill kits and caches of guns and supplies hidden around the country absolutely sound like the stuff legends are made out of. It sounds like one of those details that snuck into the reporting but isn't actually true. However, Keyes led the investigators to one. They absolutely do exist, and there are ideas on where others may be, and several have not been found. Keyes said that when he got to the courier's house, he cut the phone line first and waited to see if it set off a house alarm. When it didn't, he entered the house while the couriers were sleeping. He woke them up and quickly restrained them with zip ties he had taken from the kill kit. He asked them for their ATM cards and if they had a safe, and he also took the gun from their nightstand. I imagine at this point, they thought they were just being robbed. This was just a home invasion. But then Keyes forced them into their car where he drove them to an abandoned farmhouse he had previously scoped out. He left Lorraine in the car while he took Bill to the basement and tied him to a stool. Lorraine took this opportunity to make a run for it from the car, and she made it pretty close to the road before Keyes caught up with her and dragged her back to the farmhouse. He tied her to a bed that had been left behind in one of the bedrooms. Keyes said when he went down to the basement to check on Bill, he had managed to get out of some of his restraints and he was yelling, where is my wife? Getting out of those restraints had to have been difficult for Bill, since he had trouble even turning his head from side to side due to his condition. So he was truly fighting for himself and Lorraine at this point. But Bill nearly getting free angered Keyes. In talking to Josh, the host of True Crime Bullshit, I know at this point in Keyes' life, he was having trouble maintaining control. He wasn't being as careful and methodical as he had been in the past. He wasn't as careless as he would be with his last confirmed victim, but things still weren't going quite his way, and at this point, he was having trouble adapting to it. Key said he had planned out what was going to happen that night, and Bill nearly getting free had changed in his mind what was happening. In a rage, Keyes beat Bill with a shovel and then shot him to death. According to Keyes, this was the only victim he shot. He then went upstairs and raped Lorraine. He brought her to the basement to show her Bill's body, though he said she was pretty out of it at that point. He then strangled her with a rope from behind. 
Keyes said he left their bodies in the basement in garbage bags and then covered them with debris from the house. Keyes initially thought he was going to go ahead and burn down the farmhouse to hide the bodies, but he said he had gotten carried away and it was daytime by the time he left. He didn't want to risk being seen with the fire attracting attention, so he left. One thing Keyes did well with his crimes was to get rid of the bodies so they couldn't be found. Leaving two bodies in a house where they might be found wasn't something he tended to do, so he made plans to go back to burn the house down a few days later. But when he got to Essex, he learned the courier's car had been found, and there was a full-on search for them. He did not want to draw attention to this house while everyone was looking for the couriers. After he was arrested, he said he still planned to go back a third time, and that time he would have torched the house. But those plans were for the spring of 2012, and, well, he was already in custody by then. As it happened, unbeknownst to Keyes, the farmhouse was torn down several months after the murders. It was completely unrelated to anything having to do with Bill or Lorraine. The house was demolished and the debris and trash was taken to the dump. After Keyes' confession, investigators did send a forensic team to the farmhouse where tests were run on the old basement area, and they found indications of human decomposition. The landfill where the debris from the house was sent was also searched but the couple's remains have not been recovered. The FBI agents interviewing Keyes were sure this was a true confession from the start because Keyes had so many details, things not published in the papers. He knew about the cut phone lines. He knew that it was a crowbar that was used to break the window in the garage. He knew the floor plan of the house, the make and model of the handgun stolen, and on and on, things only the killer would know. He said he planned on robbing two or three small banks while he had the courier's car, but it was an old car, and he wasn't sure it was going to be reliable enough. Not only was the gas gauge low and he couldn't be caught on security cameras refilling it, it was also overheating. So he dumped it, got into his rental car, and then went to Maine to visit his brother as planned. After this confession, the local news reported that a suspect in the courier disappearances had been arrested in another state for another crime. Keyes' name was left out of all of the reporting at this point. This was because the FBI wanted Keyes to keep talking, and they knew he wouldn't if his name was published. That was part of his deal. No publicity, a quick execution date, and he would talk. Bill and Lorraine's family supported withholding this information because they wanted Keyes to keep talking for the sake of other families. They knew all too well what it was like not having answers for years, and they wanted to save other families from that ongoing pain if they could. Though Keyes did keep talking, he did not confess directly to any other murders aside from the one he had been arrested for, the murder of Samantha Koenig. And he confessed to this one first, pretty much immediately after he was arrested. On February 1st, 2012, 18-year-old Samantha Koenig went to work at the Common Grounds coffee stand 
in Anchorage, Alaska. For those unfamiliar with the concept, a stand is a drive-through only or walk-up only service. Inside the building is just enough space for the employees. Sometimes they'll have a space outside for people to sit at tables, but this was February in Alaska, so it's just a small stand in a parking lot. Keyes was living in Anchorage at this time, and he always said he didn't kill close to home and that this was an exception. This was for sure the closest to home he ever killed, but that didn't mean Keyes necessarily struck random locations. He always stuck to areas he was comfortable with, as far as we know. When we talk about Essex, Vermont with the Couriers or Tupper Lake with Deborah Feldman, Keyes had property in Constable, New York, which is an hour and a half to two hours from both locations. With other suspected cases, Keyes had family in the area who he was visiting at the time of the disappearances. Also, the obvious, Keyes could have lied about this. He may have more victims closer to his homes in Washington and Alaska, his home in New York, possibly places he was stationed throughout the country when he was in the military. But this crime, the murder of Samantha Koenig, was as close to home as it gets because in this case, Keyes brought her back to his home. He had prepped his shed with tarps, blankets, and a radio in advance. Another way Keyes planned this out was the location. Common Grounds had a convenient location, and it was open later than other coffee stands in the area. And because it was a stand, there was no chance a customer would be inside at the same time. There is also evidence similar to the Courier case that Keyes was specifically stalking Samantha Koenig. He mentioned in an interrogation that he knew what time her boyfriend would be there to pick her up, meaning he watched her and knew her schedule. The night of the abduction, Keyes parked across the street from Common Grounds. He walked over to the coffee stand just before it closed. He ordered a coffee. He was wearing a ski mask, but again, Alaska, February, this wouldn't have been uncommon. Samantha made the coffee and handed it to Keyes. When she did, he pulled out a gun and demanded money. Samantha complied and handed over the cash that she had. Keyes then forced himself inside the stand, bound Samantha's hands with zip ties, and led her out. Keyes said he asked her where her car was, but she said she didn't have one, that someone was picking her up from work. He then forced her on foot toward the main road. At one point, like Lorraine Courier, Samantha got away. Keyes managed to catch up to her and tackled her to the ground. He then pushed the gun against her, threatening to shoot her if she didn't cooperate. He then walked her across to where his truck was and forced her inside. This was caught on security footage, and it was right around 8 p.m. Key said he told Samantha that this was a kidnapping for ransom, and she told him it wasn't going to be very successful since her family did not have a lot of money. Keyes told her that her family would figure it out and essentially crowdfund the ransom. Samantha appeared, according to Keyes, to believe him that she would be released unharmed if she went along quietly. But of course, that was never his plan. 
They drove around Anchorage because Keyes was waiting to make sure his daughter and girlfriend would be in bed by the time he got home. While they were driving around, he realized that they had left Samantha's cell phone behind, which was an important part of his plan. He needed her phone to first throw her family off the track and then to send the ransom demands. He ended up driving back to the stand, getting the phone, and leaving undetected. Samantha's boyfriend then showed up at the coffee stand a little after 8.30 to pick her up, but he found the place was closed down for the night and Samantha wasn't there. He tried to call and text her from the parking lot, but he didn't get an answer, so he drove home where he, Samantha, and Samantha's father all lived to see what was going on. Maybe she had gotten a ride with someone else. Samantha was not at home, so he called and texted a few more times. It was a few hours later, around 11.30, when he got a text from Samantha's phone that said basically, F you, I'm going to spend a couple days with my friends, let my dad know. The two had been arguing a little bit that day over text, but the text still seemed out of character for Samantha. At 11.53, another F you text was sent. Israel Keys was the one with the phone and obviously the one sending those text messages. He then took the battery out of the phone, something he often did with his own phone while committing crimes. He did it as a countermeasure so he couldn't get traced back to the scene through cell phone data. Keys then drove Samantha to his house where he took her into the shed he had in his driveway and it was off to the side of the garage. Keyes said he told Samantha to give him her debit card, but she said she didn't have it with her. The card was in the truck she and her boyfriend shared back at their house. Samantha told him where her house was and the pin for the card. Keyes bound Samantha and turned up the radio in the shed to drown out any noise she might make. He told her that he had a police scanner so he would know if the neighbors heard any screams and called 911. Keys then actually drove to Samantha's house to get her debit card. When I first read this, I thought, what an unnecessary risk. How much money did he think an 18-year-old barista had in her bank account? But Keys had a plan for this car. It was both an integral part of his plan but it was also his downfall. Keyes almost didn't get away from the house with the card. Samantha's boyfriend caught him rifling through the truck, and he yelled at Keyes. He then went into the house to get help before he confronted who he thought was a thief, but by the time he got back outside, Keyes had run off. He made it to his truck and out of the neighborhood. Keys then went to an ATM to try the card and make sure Samantha didn't lie about the pin. When he knew he had the right number, Keys went back to a shed where he raped and murdered Samantha. He left her body in a cabinet in the shed, went inside his house, and showered. He then woke up his daughter and girlfriend, and they took a cab to the airport. With Samantha's body left in his shed, Keys went on vacation. He and his family flew to Houston and then drove to New Orleans to board a cruise ship. Meanwhile, in Anchorage, Samantha's father, James, was obviously very worried. He didn't think the text to the boyfriend sounded legit, 
So he contacted Samantha's boss when they didn't hear from her by the morning. The owner of the stand pulled the security footage from the night before and literally watched Samantha's kidnapping. He could see Samantha hand the coffee to a man in a ski mask. Then suddenly she stepped back and put her hands up. Then she turned off the lights, got cash, put it into a bag, and handed it to the man. Then the man in the ski mask climbed through the window into the stand and led Samantha away across the street. Seeing this, he immediately contacted the Anchorage police. When the police talked to Samantha's father and boyfriend, the boyfriend mentioned the incident of the man breaking into the truck late the night before, almost morning. It was 2 or 3 a.m. He told the police Samantha's license and debit card were stolen. At the time, he just thought it was some guy rifling through a vehicle and not worth calling the police over. But now knowing Samantha was actually abducted, it seemed incredibly more significant. Though the investigators were able to watch the robbery and kidnapping happen on CCTV, they did not immediately rule out those close to Samantha. They looked into her boyfriend, her father, and various other friends for possibly being involved or even orchestrating it. When Samantha's father, James, seemed eager to collect reward money from the public, some found this suspicious, like he was making money off of his daughter's disappearance. According to the files, Josh Hallmark from True Crime Bullshit got through his FOIA requests. The police and the FBI were very much looking at James Koenig, but a lot of the things that looked suspicious at the time were only suspicious-looking because they suspected James. Sure, James could look like he was trying to get money on the back of his daughter's disappearance, but he could also have been panicking. His daughter was missing. She had been abducted. He wanted to get a reward together as soon as possible to get her back alive. I'm sure this only added to his pain and grief to also be treated like a suspect. Meanwhile, Israel Keys was on a Caribbean cruise. Keyes, his girlfriend, and his daughter flew to Houston, Texas. There, he rented a car. They stayed in Lafayette, Louisiana for a couple of days before leaving on February 6th for the cruise out of New Orleans. They returned from the cruise on February 11th, and Keyes' girlfriend went to spend some time with friends. Keyes and his daughter drove to his mother Heidi's house in Dallas, Texas. Heidi was preparing to move to Wells, Texas to join the rest of the Church of Wells, which is a revivalist Christian church that was labeled in 2015 as an emerging cult. This would not be the first cult-like group Heidi Keys had joined in her lifetime. But according to her testimony of the Church of Wells, which is available on their website should you want to read it, Heidi believed a pervading spirit of individualism and independence stopped her previous groups from achieving true unity. And whenever someone tells me they joined a church that encourages the near-absolute surrendering of independence, my cult alarm goes off. But Israel Keys had long since rejected his family's faith, which had left a rift between him and his father. His father died in 2002, 
and Keyes did remain close to most of his remaining family, even somewhat tolerating their various attempts to convert him. The day after Keyes and his daughter arrived at his mother's house, he turned off his phone and snuck out of the house without telling anyone. He left behind his daughter and a note. He turned his phone on that night just long enough to text Heidi that he was stuck in the mud. Then he turned it off again, so he didn't get the text Heidi sent back offering to pull him out of the mud if he would tell her where he was. The next evening, Keyes turned his phone on again just long enough to send a text to his mom saying that he was at the Cleburne Mall, which is an hour from Heidi's house. He then turned his phone off again. His mother and sister actually drove to the mall looking for him, assuming he needed a ride since his car was stuck in the mud. They texted asking where he was, but he never showed up, even though they stayed there for several hours waiting for him. The next night, Keyes turned his phone on again, and this time, instead of texting Heidi, he called her. He said he had been waiting at the mall that night on the other side of the mall and hadn't seen her. So his mother and sister drove down to the mall again, met up with Keyes, and now this time he had his rental car with him. While there was mud on it, he said he had managed to get it unstuck himself. Keyes was gone for three days. Three days completely unaccounted for that he claimed he was sitting around stuck in the mud. While he was gone, he and his daughter missed their flights back to Alaska. Keyes told his mother that all of his credit cards were frozen or maxed out. So on the morning of February 16th, Heidi paid for Keyes and his daughter to get new plane tickets leaving on the 18th. And then Keyes left the house, turned off his phone, and disappeared again. Except this time we know where he went. At 9.40 in the morning, Keyes was in Alito, Texas, setting a house on fire. And then at noon, he robbed a bank in Azel, Texas. He made it back to Heidi's house around 3 p.m. He paid Heidi back for the plane tickets using the proceeds from the bank robbery. On February 17th, Keyes disappeared again, again with his phone off. He returned to his mom's house, and then on the 18th, he and his daughter drove to Houston to catch their new flight home. Keyes returned the rental car in Houston. If Keyes had driven from Houston to Lafayette to New Orleans, then to Dallas, Texas, where his mother lived, then to the Cleburne Mall, to the bank robbery, to the arson site, back and forth, all over, and then back to the airport again, he would have put around 1,100 miles on the car as calculated by Josh Hallmark. Instead, he racked up over 2,000 miles. And that discrepancy in mileage in the three days Keys was missing, plus the part of the other day and plus the part of the other day, are the reasons I went to Texas with Josh last month. Josh has a theory on what happened in this time frame, and that is what we're talking about in the second bonus episode. Like I said earlier, it is speculation. It is full of speculation. This here is largely our speculation-free episode. So let's get back on our timeline. Keys got back to Anchorage and pulled Samantha's body from the cabinet. It had frozen in the time it was there. 
He used a hairdryer to thaw at least the outer body. He then braided her hair. He put makeup on her and posed her to look like she was alive, which included sewing her eyes open. Keyes then put a copy of the local paper from February 13th next to the body and snapped a Polaroid picture. The newspaper being a few days back makes sense because February 13th was a day Keyes had an alibi in Texas. There is an image supposedly of this ransom picture floating around online, but I want to be clear that it is a recreation from a true crime TV show. People think it's real, but it is not. It's pretty easy to spot it as a recreation because the details are wrong. For instance, the woman in the photograph has shoulder-length hair hanging loose when we know Keyes braided Samantha's hair. This isn't an actual picture of the ransom note. Out of respect for the family, this has never been released and probably never should be. Those who post it online thinking it's a real picture of Samantha Koenig's dead body are being ghouls. Anyway, after taking the picture, Keyes photocopied the Polaroid. So we have a Polaroid that was then photocopied, and that made it low quality enough that no one was really going to see the signs that Samantha was dead in the picture. On the back of the photocopy, Keyes typed a ransom note. And he used a typewriter rather than a computer printer so it couldn't be traced back to him too easily. On February 24th, 2012, the note was left at Connors Bog Park, which is in Anchorage. There is a dog park within that park, and Keyes texted Samantha's boyfriend from her phone saying that there was a ransom note under a picture of Albert at Connors Bog Park. The Anchorage police went out there and they found a Ziploc bag with the ransom note in it under a flyer that was posted about a dog named Albert. The note demanded $30,000 and said to deposit it into Samantha's bank account. While waiting on the money to be deposited, Keyes dismembered Samantha's body, drove out to Matanuska Lake under the guise of ice fishing, and cut a hole in the ice at the deepest part. He then dropped Samantha's remains into the lake. Samantha's father, James, then did as the ransom note asked. He started putting the reward money donated to him by members of the community into Samantha's account as the ransom payment, and the investigators watched the bank account. The hope was that if money kept showing up in the account, the killer would keep withdrawing it. Now, you have to wonder what kind of clever serial killer gets away with murders across the country for years and then gets tempted by breadcrumbs of cash. Israel Keys is that serial killer. He was spiraling. On February 29th, late at night and into March 1st, Keyes used Samantha's ATM card a few times in the Anchorage area. Pulling security footage, authorities could see that the person using the car was a white man who was driving a Nissan Xterra. And as much as Keyes was spiraling and falling apart at this time, He was trying to keep it together on the surface. He was still working the jobs through his contracting company and even attended a parent-teacher conference for his 10-year-old daughter. 
and we know he was watching the news very closely for developments in the Samantha Koenig case. He started leaving comments online on media reports about the case, and he did so using the screen name Israel. His comments weren't earth-shattering by any means. However, they did get the authorities' attention because they did show that this may be someone who knew what happened to Samantha. This poster, this Israel, blamed Samantha, essentially saying she was dating one man and flirting with another. That sounded like a possible motive. So the police were interested in who was leaving these comments even before they knew the name Israel Keys. Keyes then flew to Las Vegas on March 6th with his daughter, and he rented a car. He was headed to his sister's wedding in eastern Texas. On March 7th, Keyes used Samantha's card in Wilcox, Arizona. The police were dispatched but missed him by a few minutes. Keyes again used the car in Lordsburg, New Mexico. Though they missed him again, they did have a description of his car at this point. It was a white Ford Focus. They did not know what he looked like, though, because he wore a disguise while he was using the ATM. Knowing they were looking for a white Ford Focus that was moving east, they were able to spot two of them by cameras on the highway. Both of the license plates came back as registered to rental car companies. So the investigator sent requests to the rental car company to get the contracts so they could get the names. The card was used next in Texas, twice, in two towns outside of Houston. So a be on the lookout was sent to the area, including neighboring states. Before the rental agreements came through to give the FBI their suspects, a white Ford Focus was spotted in the parking lot of a hotel in Lufkin, Texas, which is an hour from where Samantha's card was last used. Investigators staked out the car for 30 minutes when 34-year-old Israel Keys left the hotel, put his bags in the trunk, and got into the car. He pulled away, and a patrol officer pulled him over for speeding at 11.25 a.m. on March 13th. When Keys was pulled over, he was clearly agitated, and he was sweating profusely, according to the agents on the scene. Visible in plain sight were face masks that he wore while using the ATM. When they searched the car and Keyes' wallet, they found Samantha's cell phone, her license, and her ATM card. Keyes was arrested initially for fraud for using that bank card. Keyes later said he was agitated at this traffic stop because it wasn't part of his plan. He always thought that if or when he got caught, he would go out in a blaze of glory. He would go out in a shootout with police. But when they pulled him over, his gun was in the trunk, and he couldn't figure out how to get to it. He said he never planned to go meekly in handcuffs, but that's exactly what he ended up doing. Keyes told the agents that he had to call his brother, who was nearby, because he had Israel's daughter. He had to let him know what was going on. For her sake, I think it's a very good thing that they didn't catch up to him at those other stops, because she was with him. 
by catching him while she was away with her uncle, spared her watching him get hauled away. In the beginning of April, after Keyes confessed, FBI divers were able to retrieve Samantha's remains from the lake where he left her. But after Keyes was arraigned for the charges related to Samantha's case, the FBI was not allowed to talk to him about that case without his lawyer. But they could talk to him about any other case other than that one. The confessions for the murders of the couriers, the sort of Deborah Feldman confession, and all the other vague confessions came out over a series of interviews. Keyes said he wanted the whole thing wrapped up in a year. He wanted the legal process to be done, an execution carried out within one year of his arrest. He said the longer they dragged it out or the more they tried to tie him to cases while he sat in prison for years, the more often his name would be in the news. And every time his name was in the news, it would impact his daughter and other family members. But he was very focused on sparing his daughter from the fallout of his crimes. But the investigators were not given the year. On December 2nd, 2012, less than nine months after his arrest, Keyes ended things for himself by taking his own life in his cell in Anchorage, Alaska. I know those reporting on this case have tried very hard to spare the family, particularly Keyes' daughter. I know Josh has never used the daughter's name in any of his podcast episodes, and in his Facebook group for the podcast, his team is on strict orders to delete any reference to her that may identify her, not just her name, but anything about her. Article after article simply calls her his daughter. It is really amazing to see how many people in the true crime community are dedicated to protecting her identity. She deserves that much. And the families of Israel Keyes' victims also deserve whatever answers they can get. That means Keyes' name is going to come up again and again as people try to solve these cold cases, as they try to take these vague confessions and match the circumstances to missing people and unsolved cases. True Crime Bullshit is an investigative podcast in every way you can imagine, and I truly believe Josh is finding answers to the mysteries Israel Keys left behind. And very importantly to me, he's doing so ethically and with compassion, which are two things true crime podcasting can always use more of. Thank you for listening. You can find Crimelines on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Crimelines is also on YouTube, where I post two to three true crime videos a week, including an occasional after show where we go over any visuals from that week's podcast episode. Crimelines is also on Patreon, where I offer early and ad-free episodes as well as bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash crimelines. And if you want to buy me a coffee, the official drink of Crimelines, you can give a one-time donation at basementfortproductions.com slash support. And if you need a palate cleanser after listening to heavier true crime shows, check out Rusty Hinges, an occasionally funny history, mystery, and true crime podcast that I co-created and write for. 